Let's pray. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity that you've given us to gather, to worship, to get life put into perspective, to have our souls nourished, to invest our life, not just to spend it. Lord, thank you for your word and all of the lessons that are in it. Though they happened so long ago, yet they seem to recur so often in even our own experience. Lord, I pray that you would give to us what you know we individually need tonight and need as a body from your word, that your spirit would speak to us. Lord, so often we cry out to you and we want to hear your voice. I think of Elijah who didn't hear you in the earthquake or in the fire, but it was that still small voice that spoke to him. And tonight, Lord, it might be that you would just speak to us in that inner sanctum of our own heart. And we might be set free. We pray that you do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you could picture a a two-door automobile, mom and dad, and about 12 kids under the age of 10 piled in the back, going down the road about 500 miles, And then times that by a few thousand, you have the predicament that Moses was in. It's not a coincidence they're called the children of Israel. They acted like it so often. They complained against God, and yet they saw so many great miracles. C.H. McIntosh, who wrote some of the finest literature on the first five books of Moses, said, 10,000 mercies are forgotten in a single trifling moment. So much of what God has done, it seems, just sort of washes from our minds and hearts. Whenever a problem arises, we start complaining. Well, the mixed multitude, you remember, in chapter 11, started complaining. It's contagious. Once complaining starts, it's hard to turn it off. I find that with people. When a person starts to complain, it seems that every time you see him, there's a complaint. And once a person finds something wrong... It never ends. And let's face it, there's a lot that is wrong about every situation. But then it spreads. Just as faith is often contagious, so is unbelief. And the mixed multitude griped and complained, and pretty soon the children of Israel followed suit, and they griped and they complained. And then we see that Moses griped and he complained. But at least he complained to God. The children of Israel complained to Moses as if he is God and he's going to do something about it. And Moses said, what are you crying to me for? There's an old Yugoslavian proverb that says, make sure when you complain that you complain to the right person. Well, he complained to the right one. He complained to God. He poured out his heart before God. But look back in verse 3. There's a statement that we quickly passed over last week. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. That's an interesting statement that Moses was very humble in view of the fact that Moses wrote this book. Now, would you write a book and say, by the way, I'm very proud to be humble. And some have looked at this and said, well, this is proof that Moses never could have written this statement. 
that he didn't write the first five books of Moses, that the documentary hypothesis theory of the Pentateuch is correct and somebody else wrote it, not Moses. No, I would say actually this proves that he wrote it. For nobody would dare write something like this unless they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise it would be seen as pride and arrogance, boasting in your own humility. And it was probably against his own natural inclination. But written by the Spirit of God, and it was true. He wasn't the kind of guy to make things an issue. That is, Moses had been confronted by his sister and his brother, his siblings. And, you know, he's not the kind to say, no, wait a minute, I'm the boss here, and if you don't like it, I'm going to fire you. He just sort of, you know, hey, well, whatever. He was a humble man. But here's a lesson here, you know. You're always advised against nepotism, hiring your own family. And here's a situation where it's gone a little wrong. Remember Aaron, Moses' brother, back in Exodus? Moses said, look, I can't talk. God said, I'll be with your mouth. Oh, yeah, but they won't believe me. And he had excuse after excuse. Finally, God said, all right. Then your brother Aaron can be the spokesman. I'll tell you my word. You tell him, and he'll tell Pharaoh. And that was the setup. And the older sister is also on this trip, Miriam, who is a prophetess. Both Aaron and Miriam have had God speak through them, and they're a little angry that God, or that Moses, they think, is presumptuous in letting God only speak through him. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, this is really where we left off last week, to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. It sounds like something my parents said to me as a kid. So the three came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both went forward. And he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face even plainly and not in dark sayings, and he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The general method of which God spoke to prophets in the Old Testament was through dreams and visions. Now often he did speak, thus says the Lord, and they gave a message. But God would often speak through dreams or through visions. Now, a vision is very much like a dream, except you are awake when it happens, and you see the images like you would in a dream, but you are in a conscious state rather than a subconscious state. But dreams were often dark sayings. They were enigmatic, and they needed to be interpreted. And so Joseph was able to interpret dreams. Remember, young Joseph saw dreams, and he was very naive in sharing the dreams. Like he had a dream about his brothers and his mom and dad. He had a dream and he told his brothers. Now picture it. He's one of 12. And he says, hey, brothers, I had a dream and there were 12 sheaves and all of your sheaves bowed down to me. And they didn't like that. And he had more dreams that included mom and dad. But there was a time when he was put into Egypt and the chief baker and the chief butler of Egypt both had a dream and they didn't know what it meant. They were in prison. And so Joseph says, well, tell me your dream. And 
The chief butler said, well, in my dream I saw a vine grow before me and clusters of grapes grow immediately. And then the grapes were squeezed into a cup that I had and it was on my head and I gave it to the Pharaoh. Joseph said, easy, piece of cake. The three vines that you saw were three days and in three days the Pharaoh will lift up your head and you'll be restored back to your position as the chief butler. But when you leave, remember me. And the chief baker heard the interpretation. He said, well, I've got a dream too. Let let me tell you what I dreamed last night. I saw three baskets on my head. They were white, and the uppermost basket had all sorts of bread in it, and birds were eating the bread from the basket. Joseph said, I know what that means too. Three baskets are also three days, and in three days, the Pharaoh will lift off your head from your body, hang you on a tree, and the birds will pick at your flesh. Now, that was not a good interpretation. That's not what he wanted to hear. But nonetheless, it was accurate. And God spoke even to unbelievers through dreams. God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar through dreams. He saw this huge tree. He saw this image set up with many metals. And Daniel had the interpretation. But with Moses, God, it says, spoke plainly. And it says here, face to face. See, now, wait a minute. We now have a discrepancy in the Bible. Because here it says God spoke face to face, yet back in Exodus, I think chapter 20, or chapter uh, 33, verse 20, it tells us, you cannot see my face, Moses, for no man can see me and live. And it says in the Gospel of John, no man has seen God at any time, except the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And then Paul said that God dwells in inapproachable light. Yet here it says God spoke face to face. The idea here is that God spoke in plain, simple, understandable language. Moses did not see the form of God that is the full glory of God. Even God said, you'll kick the bucket if you see it, Moses. You can't see it. You can see the... uh, afterglow, so to speak, or when I leave, you'll see some kind of an image, but you can't see me in my glory. And so when it says that God said, I speak face to face to Moses, that's what we call an anthropomorphism or language that describes God, but it is human language. It's so humans can understand it. Here you've got infinite God that transcends our understanding, and somehow we have to understand him. The only way that's done is to use human language and analogies. For instance, the wings of the Lord are outstretched, the Bible talks about. Well, please don't picture God as flapping his wings. That's an anthropomorphism. It is a picture of protection. Or the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. It doesn't mean that God has uh, the retina and the iris and the vitreous humor and all of the parts of the eye that we have. These are things that are written about God so that humans can understand. So God is simply saying, I speak one-on-one with this guy very plainly. Back in Exodus, it says, as a man would speak to his friend. In other words, in casual conversation. And I love that. I love to communicate with God like that, like friends would speak. Friends speak and they hang out together. It's not formal. Though there's reverence in friendship, it's, it's wonderful to sit back and just share your heart. And that's how I love to pray. 
I'll take a walk or I'll sit down and I'll just tell God what's on my mind, what's on my heart. As a man would speak to his friend. And then in verse 9, or verse, or no, no, notice back in verse 7. Well, verse 9. The anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. Now, God was angry because if God chose Moses to be his representative, and God spoke to Moses in a different way than he spoke to others, he singled them out as sort of the mediator of the covenant. For them to speak against Moses, they were speaking against God. And again, God takes that kind of complaining very, very seriously. God identifies with his people, with his vessels. Remember Saul of Tarsus learned this lesson. He was persecuting Christians, especially Christian leaders, who had taken the gospel from Jerusalem to Damascus. He wanted to throw them in jail and kill them who called upon Jesus. On his way up to Damascus, he got put flat on his back. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now that threw him. He said, well, who are you, Lord? I think he had a hunch because nobody speaks like that but the Lord. But what threw him is that he said, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul wasn't persecuting him. He thought he's persecuting them, church leaders who live in Damascus. But in that statement, why are you persecuting me? In a flash, there was a revelation that when you touch God's people, you touch God. When you mess with God's servants, you're messing with God and God takes it personally. No blow on earth goes unfelt in heaven. God feels it. God identifies with his people. And even David had respect for God's anointed. King Saul was a creep. He was rebellious. He sinned against God. And one time when David was out in the caves down by the Dead Sea, Saul came in to relieve himself. In the very same cave, they were all alone. There's David, there's Saul. A few of David's men were behind him and said, look, God has delivered him into your hands. Now's your chance. Kill him. He said, how could I dare touch the Lord's anointed? And he wouldn't, even though Saul was out to kill him, even in revenge, he wouldn't touch him. So the anger of the Lord was aroused. He departed. Verse 10, when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. Now here's Aaron. He is the one guy that God used to diagnose leprosy. Remember when somebody had a skin disease, they go to the high priest, the high priest would examine the person. If it was indeed a skin disease that was identifiable, that person would be separated for a few days outside the camp and re-examined. Well, Aaron turns around and sees his sister covered with leprosy in an instant. It was a miracle. It was a miracle of judgment. Now, you might ask the question, you might say, well, this is a bit unfair. Why didn't God strike Aaron? See, God's down on women. He's a chauvinist. He struck Miriam instead of Aaron. But remember, Aaron was the high priest. And for the high priest to come down with leprosy would mean that Israel would have no mediator. No one that would stand in the gap as the high priest. And that was a position God wanted to keep for the sake of his people.
Also, back in verse 1, if you notice, it says, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. The word spoke in Hebrew is in the feminine, which would indicate that Miriam led this whole thing. She was the one that instigated it. She was the one that said, Look, he's my little brother. I was the girl who saw that little ark of bulrushes back in Egypt go down to Pharaoh's house, and I told Pharaoh's daughter that I could get a midwife from the Hebrews, and so I got my mom. I'm responsible for this kid's success. What right does he have? So she, no doubt, was headstrong and instigated it, and Aaron followed along. Because spoke here is in the feminine rather than in the plural or even in the masculine. Aaron just went along. My perception of Aaron, I don't know how you picture him, but I see him as weak, a little bit spineless. Uh, he was the kind really to lead, uh, to follow rather than to lead. Uh, remember when Moses was up on the mountain and he was receiving the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the blueprint for the tabernacle? He came back, and what were the children of Israel doing? Worshiping what? A golden calf. And Moses was angry, and he came to Aaron and said, Aaron, what happened? And Aaron had the lamest excuse. Remember his excuse? He said, well, you know, you were gone, and, and the people got worried, and the people said, well, look, Moses, he's dead, and so, you know, we need uh, uh, to follow something. And so, uh, you know, I just collected all this jewelry uh, that the people gave me. They told me to do it, Moses. They told me to do it, and I took their jewelry, and I threw it in the fire, and a calf came out. <laughs> really, it happened. A calf just walked out. That's called a lame brain excuse. But he was following the pressure of the people rather than saying, this is corrupt. This is wrong. This is rebellious. He just sort of played along with it. And it seems like in this rebellion, he's doing the same kind of a thing. So Aaron said to Moses, oh, my Lord. Now he gets very humble and very sincere suddenly. Please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. That's a very, very descriptive way of saying, man, she's ugly. Lord, don't let her, look at her. Oh, good. don't let her stay like this. She's a sight. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, please heal her, O God, I pray. Talk about, he's gracious. You know, we would be tempted to say, oh, you know, may she just rot. Yeah, I think he was tired of the complaints, but he, oh, God, you know, it's his sister. And he feels sorry for her. Oh, God, please heal her, I pray. And the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be put out of the camp seven days, and afterward she may be received again. So Miriam was shut out of the camp for seven days, and the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. Now, an act of disgrace that brought a public rebuke, brought a public consequence. Over in Deuteronomy, we're going to read that if a woman approaches a man and says, I'm your sister-in-law. I was married to your brother. Your brother died before I could have any children. It is now your responsibility, according to the Old Testament law, to raise up children from me with your brother's name attached. It is your duty. If he says, no, I'm not gonna, I don't want you as my wife, get out of here. Take a hike. Get a life. 
that she was to spit in his face. And there was a time of disgrace that that man had to fulfill in Israel. So God said, look, if, if her father even shamed her, if she had done something at home and spit in her face, she would have to go through this period of uncleanness anyway, so let her be removed for a period of seven days. Now this is sad because she's shut out of the camp for seven days, and Israel now has to wait for her for seven days. She's defiled. She's out of the camp. You know, she's part of those who camp around the tabernacle, but she's sort of in exile for seven days, and they can't budge till she's restored. All that to say that when we sin... It is never private. It does affect other people. Our sin can affect others. Remember Jonah? God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. He said, no, forget Nineveh. I'm going to Tarshish. It's Spain. It's a beautiful place. Palm trees are blowing. The waves are great this time of the year. Forget the Ninevites. So we went the opposite direction. God sent a storm in the boat where Jonah was. And all of these people cry out to their God, and there's Jonah asleep in the bottom of the boat. They wake him up and said, cry to your God. But all of the tempest they had to go through because there was a man aboard the boat who had sinned against his God. Our sin affects other people. And the Bible says if one member of the body suffers, we all suffer with it. And here's a case where this is true. She's forced to bear blame of public rebuke. She's outside the camp for seven days. Now, can you see what gossip does? Can you see what complaining can do? It can get contagious, and it can ruin a community. It can ruin a church. So many churches, if you have come from other church backgrounds, you know it is very common for churches to split over really dumb things. The carpet committee wanted red carpet, but the women's committee wanted green carpet. And now the people on the carpet committee are going to form their own church because the women have had the upper hand. All sorts of breaks in the church, all because of petty little things complaining. From the Atlanta Journal, their newspaper, there's an article that says, I am more deadly than the screaming shell of a cannon. I win without killing. I tear down homes. I break hearts. I wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity is pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sand of the sea and as often as the innocent. I never forget. I seldom forgive. My name is gossip. Gossip can destroy. Words that are carelessly spoken can destroy relationships, often permanently. Now, in verse 16, afterward, the people moved. They had to wait for her. They moved from Hazarot and encamped in the wilderness of Paran. They have now come to the gate. They are at the portal, the threshold of the land of Canaan. Paran is where Kadesh Barnea is, a little encampment by which they would launch an assault, not really an attack, but a spying mission. They were meant from that point to go up through the Negev desert and into the land that God had promised them. The land was before them, but this is as far as they get for a while. Not until the book of Joshua will we see them enter the land. Only 12 of them in this very next chapter are about to enter the land. They're going to be wandering around in this desert of dirt and rocks, 
for 37 and a half years from this point, a total of 40 years altogether. Now, that was not God's intention. God never brought them up to Kadesh Barnea so that they could fail. God had a plan for them. God wanted them to enter a land of blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey where they would prosper, where their children would be free and roam and enjoy the fat of the land. That was God's goal. But instead, they didn't get into it. They wandered. Over in Deuteronomy, Moses put it best. He says, God brought us out that he might bring us in. God brought us out of Egypt that he might bring us in the land of Canaan. That's always God's intention. He delivers you out of the clutches of the devil. He delivers you out of the wilderness of Egypt, the world, that he might bring you in to the fullness of his promises. But we see here that they wandered, and it's very descriptive of what so many of us do, I think. It's not God's intention. The Bible says he's the author and what? Finisher of your faith. God hasn't brought you this far to dump you. Yet so often we feel like, man, this is it. God's forsaken me. I've prayed and things aren't happening the way I'd like them to. I guess it's all over here. No, God hasn't brought you this far to just let you dangle and torture you. <laughs> God has a land for you. But there are lessons at the same time. And sometimes it feels like I'm in a wilderness. That's when we have to press in by faith. Now in Numbers 13, the Lord spoke to Moses saying... Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. The mission of the spies was to determine what kind of land it was. What is it like? Uh, what kind of hills and valleys? What kind of rainfall? What kind of trees? What are the people like? How are the inhabitants of the land? What will it be like for us? Now, Whose idea was it to send the spies? You say, well, right here it says the Lord spoke to Moses and said, do it. However, it's always a necessity to compare Scripture with Scripture, right? There are four Gospels as an example. And all of the four Gospel writers select an angle, just like somebody who writes for a newspaper has an angle, a bent, by which they write. It's their journalistic style. And Matthew wrote for the Jews... And Luke wrote for the Greeks, and uh, uh, Mark for the Romans, and um, the Gospel of John speaks about Jesus as uh, God in human flesh. All of them have a different kind of an angle. So you need a composite picture. You need to read all four Gospels to get the whole picture. So you read one Gospel where it says when Jesus died on the cross, there was a sign on the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Another gospel says this is the king of the Jews. And all four gospel stories have an entirely different saying above the cross. You say, well, it's a discrepancy. Far from it. If you put them all together, it would say, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But because they're writing with a bent, they have an angle. If they're writing for the Jews or for the Romans, they would select a certain portion of that to include for the sake of the audience. Well, when you read the Old Testament, you get a composite picture. And over in Deuteronomy, the people ask God. They said, we want to send spies. And it seems as though God simply acquiesced to their demand. Let me read something out of Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 20. 
And I said to you, you have come to the mountain of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. As the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you, do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into what, which we shall come. I think the sending of the spies was an act of unbelief. And they demanded it, and God acquiesced to their demand. But you know what? Later on, when Joshua sends spies into the land of Canaan, how many does he send? Two. Well, how many gave the good report here? Two. Ten of them brought a bad report. He probably thought, I don't need the other ten. All I need is two who have faith. And so 12 were sent and 10 will come back with a bad report. God had already spied out the land. God knew what hardships were there. God knew what the terrain was like. God told them. And God knew what enemies they had to face. And you know what? God could handle their enemies. Oh, but they wanted to see. You know, before we go, God, I know you're God and everything. But before we do this, let me just make sure. Sort of like a Christian saying, God, I surrender all. I want to do whatever you want me to do. But First, tell me what you have in mind before I really fully surrender. You might want to call me to the mission field. I don't know if I want to go. So you better tell me first. That's sort of what they're doing. And it really got them into trouble. It brought wandering and death for almost 40 years. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads, please notice that word, of the children of Israel, Now, these were their names. I'm not going to read their names. These guys were heads. They represent leadership. They were to be examples of faith. These were guys who were respected by their peers. Men of faith. They should have come back with statements and testimonies of faith. But instead, they give a bad report. Here, these guys that are meant to be examples are the very ones, ten of them, that turn the hearts of the entire nation away from God. Which proves a point. Just because the majority gives a report doesn't make the report right. Well, everybody's doing it. Well, you know, everybody says, and the general consensus is, and you know, people are voting. Who cares? They may be wrong. John, in his little epistle of 1 John chapter 5, said, Beloved, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. In other words, we're in the minority, and we're glad we're in the minority, because with God, one is the true majority. And even though the world may say one thing, the majority is wrong. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. For worldly people, Satan is their pastor. He is their guide. He is their shepherd. And he lies to them. And we must be careful whom we listen to. We must seek out godly counsel, people of faith, people who are true leaders of faith and have a grasp on the word of God. You know, one of the dangers in counseling is that you seek out a counselor who will accommodate you, tell you what you want to hear. And I've seen people bounce from counselor to counselor. They say, I hate going to that one pastor of your church. Why? Why? He tells me the truth. 
Well, they won't say that, but he tells me this and this, and I don't want to hear that. And so they'll finally so- find somebody who says, oh, listen, I know, yes, I know exactly what you're going through, and oh, it's a shame, and listen, you've got this, 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 and that, and, and, and don't worry, you know, you just pay me $80 an hour in therapy for five years, and hey, it'll all be all right. I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. There's a lesson to be learned with Rehoboam when he took over the kingdom from his father Solomon. And the people of Israel came to him and said, okay, here's the deal, your dad, you know, he was a good king, but he put so much taxation on us. And the burden was so heavy to bear, would you please lighten the load and we'll serve you forever? He said, well, let me confer. So he got the elders of the people, those that had wisdom and insight from God. He said, gentlemen, what should I do? And they said, you ought to listen to these people because your father was very harsh with the nation. And if you show love to them and serve them, they'll serve you. They said, well, okay. Then he went to his young friends whom he had grown up with. And Rehoboam said, this is what these godly guys are saying. What do you say? And the young whippersnapper said, oh, don't listen to those old fogies. And don't listen to the people. In fact, when the people say, lighten the load that your father put upon us, tell them this. Say, my finger will be heavier than my father's waist. He beat you with whips, I'll beat you with scourges. You got to whip him into shape. So Rehoboam came and listened to the wrong crowd. He thought, yeah, that's the kind of guy I am. That's what I wanted to hear. And so he tells the people, my little finger will be heavier than my father's waist. And so Jeroboam said, fine, then we rebel. And the nation of Israel split into two, a southern and a northern kingdom. So we have to be careful when people presume to speak for God whom we listen to, that they be those who are in touch with God. Notice, though, in verse 6 from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, he's noteworthy. He's the son of Jephunneh. We'll hear about him in a little bit. These are the names, verse 16, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So he's starting to change names here. Hosea means salvation. Joshua, or Yehoshua, means God. Yahweh is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. Joshua is the transliterated Hebrew for the Greek Jesus. It's the same name. Yeshua was his name. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south. Go up into the mountains. See what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad. Now, wait a minute, Mo. God said, The land that I bring you into is an exceeding great land. It's a good land. It flows with milk and honey. So Moses is going, see if God's right. Let's see if what the Bible says really is true. You just can't go for it with face value. Let's see if it's good or bad. Whether there are forests there or not, be of good courage. (laughs) And bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. They were to go from Kadesh Barnea straight up, which is desert. It is Negev. It is like the West Mesa to the max. It's just go out that way, and that's what it's like. Until you start getting into southern Judah, and the hills are rolling and beautiful, and there's streams and forests that abound. And then they were to take the mountains, which is the central spine 
of the nation. If you were to cut the nation and look at it sideways, you would have the Mediterranean and the Shephelah, this field of green, this plain of Sharon, where it rises from the Mediterranean upward, where many, many cities were formed. And then there's a bunch of mountains. And you've got Jerusalem and the Judean hills down south. And a little bit up north, you've got uh, Bethel and Ai and uh, Samaria, all the way up toward Galilee. And then, so you've got the ocean, and then it goes up to this spine. Then it drops suddenly into the Jordan Valley, which is below sea level, and rises once again to the plains of Jordan. And so they were to spy it out along the mountain route because from the top of some of those mountains, you can see all the way to the Mediterranean Sea on a good clear day, all the way across to the Dead Sea and Mount Nebo in Jordan. And uh, you could see the Jordan Valley all the way up. It's a great view from there. So they were to check it out. They went for 40 days. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob near the entrance of Hamath. So they went all the way up into modern-day Lebanon. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron, Ahimon, Sheshai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. These are the giants. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Now, you're not familiar with Zoan, but I bet some of you will be familiar with its other name, its Egyptian name, Tanis. Does that ring a bell? Tanis. Did you ever see Indiana Jones, the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember, the whole setting took place in a place called Tanis, where they think that the ark was discovered and buried in a place called Tanis in Egypt. It was one of the cities built by the Hiskos pharaohs. These were Semitic pharaohs that around 1750, 1730 ruled that part of Egypt and uh, had this thriving city of Tanis. And it's mentioned here because of Hebron. You know, they're trying to show a time dimension. Hebron is important because, well, Abraham was buried there, Isaac was buried there, and uh, Rachel was buried in a tomb nearby. But also, Hebron is mentioned because this guy named Caleb that we just read about is the guy who takes over Hebron when they enter the land. Now, here's the scoop. Twelve guys go spy out the land. They come back. Ten say, forget it. You'll read it in a minute. Two say, let's go for it. The two, Joshua and Caleb. The children of Israel weep, they complain, they mourn. God says, fine, you're going to drop dead in the wilderness, but your kids will enter the land. And the only two left to enter the land 40 years later were Joshua and Caleb. By that time, Caleb is 85 years old. A young, you know, 45-year-old guy, you know, he's ready to go and and, and to uh, get rid of the giants, to get rid of the enemy. But now he's 85. And as they're dividing up the land... As Joshua's divvying it up to to all the tribes, Caleb, over in Joshua chapter 14, walks forward. He goes, excuse me, Josh. Of course, they were on really good terms because they were the two good spies. Uh, Josh, you remember what Moses said. They don't, of course, because they were just babies. But you and I remember that God gave us this land and that I was promised Hebron. I saw it. I saw it was good, and I want it. And he said, I'm 85 years old today. Today's my birthday. I want a birthday present. He said, 40 years ago, I said I could take the land. Now, today I'm 85, but I'm just as strong today as I was back then. 
for fighting, for going out, and for coming in. Give it to me. And so in chapter 15, he has given Joshua 15 the land and the area of Hebron. And it says that he killed a lot of the sons of Anak, the giants that were in the land, and just, you know, took over and cleaned house. You know, an 85-year-old guy with that much feist and gusto. And I'm sure when the Canaanites saw him again, if somebody maybe remembered the story of them spying out the land, this was like Jaws 2 to them. (laughs) Just when you thought it was safe to go back into the land of Canaan, it's Caleb 2. And he showed up again with more vengeance than ever before. And he took what God told him to take. And so that's the land of Hebron. They came to the valley, verse 23, of Eshkol, which is a Hebrew word for cluster, and you'll see why in a minute. And there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and the figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the men cut down there, and they returned from spying out the land for 40 days. This cluster of grapes was no ordinary cluster. It was like grapes on steroids. These grapes were so big that two guys on one pole, one in the front, one in the back, carried this cluster between them and brought it back. It's like this is hard, cold evidence that it's a good land. They brought it back. Now, when the children of Israel saw that cluster of grapes, and they should have thought, man, this is the Garden of Eden. This, look at this, and the pomegranates and the figs. You know, here they're worried about, oh, we want the flesh pots of Egypt. Have you ever broken open a fresh pomegranate on a hot day? Or had figs off the tree when they're ripened? Just a little bit, you know, just ready to fall off. Oh, man. Awesome. But notice, they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. I think this is put here as a means of comparison. 40 days, short time compared to 40 years. 40 days should have been all they waited. But instead, they're going to wait for 40 years. And it's like God is comparing what could have happened to what really did happen. Now, if you come with us to Israel, you're going to see a lot of taxi cabs or cars and vans that are the Ministry of Tourism vans. And the insignia for the Ministry of Tourism in modern Israel are two men with a pole and a huge cluster of grapes hung between them. It's still their symbol for tourism from the valley of Eshkol. Now as they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran Kadesh, they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And then they told them and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, uh uh-oh, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we we saw the descendants of Anak there, and the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Termites. Oh, that's not in here. Dwell in the mountains. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks at the Jordan. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. That's their report. Oh, it's good, but forget going there. We'll get wiped out. So 
it's an accurate report. It's a good land yet. And they start now really exaggerating the enemy aspect of it. They have gotten their eyes on the problem. And every time you look at problems, your God diminishes. When your eye is on the power of God who sent you, the problems diminish. Take your pick. Fear and faith are mutually exclusive. They cannot dwell or cohabitate peacefully together. Now, this was quite a report. Canaanites, they were the original inhabitants of the land. Amorites are mentioned. They came from Syria, about 2000 B.C., and swept all the way through the south and even went a little bit east. Then we have here mentioned the Hittites, which is a band of tribes that came from ancient Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, and settled around the 1830 B.C. down through the land of Canaan. Then finally, the Jebusites. They're the people who took over Jerusalem and still inhabited Jerusalem when David came and took it later on. So these were the enemies. However, look at all these enemies. But if they would have just stopped and looked back and say, okay, reality check, what happened in Egypt? What happened with those plagues? When they wouldn't let us go, what did God do to them? God sent them frogs in their soup, in their beds, lice on their cattle, and their firstborn died. Then God opened up the Red Sea. We went through, and they all died. I think God's big enough to handle our enemies, don't you? But again, what C.H. McIntosh said is so true. 10,000 mercies can be forgotten in a single trifling moment. All that God had done is now forgotten. And they become fearful. Caleb, I love this guy quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw there are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. Now the Hebrew word used here is Nephilim, which is a term out of Genesis chapter 6 to describe that odd race of beings. And it's their term. They're saying, we saw, you know, that, that ancient weird race. They really didn't. What they're doing is giving them that name, and they're doing it to breed fear in the hearts of the people. It was done deliberately. The descendants of Anak come from giants, and we were like, notice, grasshoppers in our own sight, so we were in their sight. It is tough to go against the tide of unbelief. It's tough when you have a bunch of pessimists to be the optimist and the one who trusts, because they'll look for every angle to shoot you down. And the report is, we're like grasshoppers. Now, what did they leave out? God. We're like grasshoppers in our sight. And if we look like grasshoppers to us, we must look like grasshoppers to them. They're so big, they'll just stomp us like insects. Whenever you fail to put God into the equation, if he's not a factor, this is what you come up with, these kinds of difficulties. The problem is this, two different reports. Two of them saw a huge God and little inhabitants. The other saw huge inhabitants and little tiny God over here. They had their eyes on the wrong place. 
Now, this is very significant. The ten guys come back and say, we know that they're stronger than we are, and they're going to eat us for breakfast, and we can't do anything about it. We are so small to them. They're just waiting for us. Let's say you sent an eyewitness news camera into Canaan and you were to interview the Canaanites, what would they have said? He said, hello, uh, we're here with Eyewitness News from Egypt. And as you know, there's a couple million people uh, that are down at Kadesh Barnea that are thinking of coming up here and taking you guys over. What do you think? Do you think they would have said, well, they're just like little grasshoppers in our sight? You say, well, who would, how can we know that? We don't know what they thought. Oh, yes, we do. You might want to turn quickly over to Joshua chapter 2. Very, very insightful. This is now when they finally enter the land. Some 37, 38 years later, they cross the Jordan River. Two spies now, not ten, are sent into the city of Jericho. And a woman named Rahab is there. And Rahab hides these two spies under layers of flax upon her roof. Joshua chapter 2, in verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard, which was 38 years ago, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That's what they were thinking. They were in utter terror of the children of Israel. God had made them so. God had gone before them. He'd spied out the land. It was ready for pickings. But these ten men of faith gave the bad report. Caleb and Joshua gave the good report. Now, Joshua, what a great dude. He becomes the, uh, the general later on after Moses dies. And Caleb, I think he fits his name. Caleb can be translated bold impetuous, but his name in Hebrew literally means a dog. Now, there are some names that are tough to grow up with. And when you have them, you grow up tough. Like the old Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue. He grew up to be a tough guy, as the song talks about. Well, a guy by the name of Dog is going to grow up to be a bold character. He's going to grow up to be a fighter. Now, they all saw the same things. It wasn't like Joshua and Caleb were sitting in a restaurant drinking a Coke when the giants came by and only ten saw them. They saw the same thing. But their perspective was with God. Alexander the Great, when he was in his 20s, took an army of soldiers from Macedonia, Greco-Macedonia, to conquer the world. He did it swiftly. Took him ten years. The problem that he faced was the Persian army. The Persian army was so huge, they had just the largest of any of the ancient armies. 
And Alexander had a, just a, uh, he was known for having a few soldiers, but like the Marines, they were a few good men. And they were very loyal. And before one battle, somebody approached Alexander and said, the Persian army lies like sand upon the seashore. And Alexander, this young, bold man, said, one butcher is not afraid of a whole flock of sheep. And he went after them, and he won the battle. Now here's Caleb standing in the strength of his God with Joshua. Let's go up at once, man, and take the land. Now, we're going to have to close with this chapter tonight, but listen to this. God had a huge land. In fact, if you look at a modern-day map of Israel, that land is shrinking fast as they're giving everything away. But if you were to measure the land from the Mediterranean and the uh, river of Egypt to the Euphrates River, which is what God gave them, which is in Iraq, which is originally part of Israel, according to the Bible. Wouldn't go over well with those countries, but it is. You would measure 300,000 square miles. It's a, it's a good-sized chunk. When Israel was at its peak under King David and King Solomon, at best... In their height and in their glory, they occupied 30,000 square miles. So at best, they only took a tenth of what God had in store for them. Now I wonder, if God has so much in store for us, and because of unbelief, we fail to take it. Because we don't trust God. You know, God said, here's the land. You've got to walk on it, though. And every place the sole of your foot treads is yours. But you've got to walk on it. Oh, but there's lions and tigers and bears. Just do it, and you'll find that I'll go before you. But even at their best, they only took a portion of what God had for them. You see, it's not enough to just say, well, I'm saved. My question to you is, are you enjoying all the riches that God has for you? The riches in Christ Jesus? In heavenly places that Ephesians taught. I'm not talking about, do you have a big Cadillac and do you have a Swiss bank account? I'm talking about the spiritual riches, the spiritual land that God has for you. You walking through it, claiming those promises, growing in Christ. Are you craving Egypt? Next week we're going to read where they, they just crave going back to Egypt. I read about a guy named John Wendell. He was called America's Most Miserly Millionaire. Died in 1915 in Fifth Avenue, his home there in New York City. He was such a miser that he decided never to marry. He would remain a bachelor. He didn't want any woman getting his money. And somehow, I don't know how, but he convinced his five sisters to remain unmarried and live in that house all their lives. When one of these gals died in 1931, her estate was worth $130 million. Yet, she never had a telephone. She never had a car. She never used any electricity. She never even had an electric bill, never used it in her house. She had one dress that she had personally made and wore for 25 years. She died with such wealth, but look how she lived. What a waste. I wonder if there aren't miserly Christians. God has given such land to us, such promises that we should claim.
I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if God will ever use me. I don't know if I'll ever grow. Oh, listen, just like Caleb say, I'm going to go for it. At once, I'll take the land. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that far from being spiritually malnourished, that we would grow with the riches of your word and know what is our inheritance, that we would not languish in the desert because of unbelief, that we would grab a hold of your promises and live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 In Jesus